0: i'm rob and i'm artie and welcome to trades planning a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade business and expat life
1: without putting you to sleep on episode 50 yes i said 50. we'll talk about the transition from greedflation to blame the workerflation my favorite china ringing the bell with a trade war of their own and a shocking secret about the swiss cheese industry and later we'll talk to Arantxa gonzalez dean of Sciences po paris school of international affairs That's That's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. And my old job. (laughs) (laughs) And former minister of foreign affairs of Spain about what will make multilateralism work. I guess members have to want it to work. What a more realistic EU policy toward China would look like and her favorite food in Geneva. It's not kebab. Weirdly. And we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. You know, you know something you have
0: a a radio voice. I wish I had your sultry. You stop, thing. you
1: stop, you're making me feel uncomfortable right now.
0: I feel uncomfortable listening to this because I have to follow this up. So let, <laughs> Let's just get into it. Hello everyone. After a slightly longer than expected break between episodes, that's Rob's fault, not mine. Although I was told I need to stop blaming him because people think it's not, it's not a joke. I was I'm stuck serious. in Croatia. Yeah. On a beach. You you were stuck in... Corsica. Corsica, Croatia. Same Same, same, same spelling. Yeah. It's the Mediterranean. Anyway, welcome to episode 50. So 50 is a pretty big number, one which Gen Zers will be happy to know as being the atomic number of tin, a soft silvery colored metal that's also now a food staple, if you like tin fish. It's the name of a famous rapper from the early 2000s. And also the number Rob is quite familiar with. Episode 50 marks a huge milestone for the Tradesplaining podcast, I guess, Probably doesn't need mentioning, but it's a podcast, so we're going to mention it anyway. As most listeners will know, we had humble beginnings, despite starting in literally my uh, living room, yeah, and moving. on a table that was a little bit shaky, yeah, a little more than on a little bit. the Podcast continues to grow, one dad joke at a time, and we're, we're thrilled and, and amazed to see that we've been. Continuing to reach listeners from the U.S. all the way to the other side of the planet in Australia, which is it's tomorrow. Funny, <laughs> it's there. So it's, that's thank you for it's, listening it's, tomorrow. It's it's September in Australia right now.
1: Yeah, it's very, nice, very um, nice
0: time of the year. So I guess me personally, I'd have to. I'd like to thank every one of our listeners who have tuned in so far. We've also I should mention that we've recently reached twenty five thousand listeners after two and a half years. So that's a pretty big milestone for a mom and pop shop type of operation. And still uh, thinking about how to monetize that. Well, I think why people like it is because it's free it and free. They, we're not constantly begging them for money. Yes, exactly. <laughs> also, I, 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 <laughs> I like to
1: mention it, you know, once I, an episode. I secretly think
0: that they like the dad jokes, despite all of the um, the hate Yeah, we get. So we also want to thank everybody. I want to thank everybody for sharing their thoughts and emails, WhatsApps, yelling at a, at me from their bike on the street just giving us any feedback and ways to make it better or just general thoughts. So I hope that continues. And I also should say before I hand it over to Rob that we couldn't end this little diatribe without thanking Michelle and Valentina, obviously, who have been with us now for the majority of the podcast, almost three years, two and a half years now. And they continue to keep doing amazing work and keeping us honest, especially me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think we need to also thank our guests, folks, folks who were coming on even early when we hadn't had too many episodes. But even now, after they've listened to us, they're still going on they're regretting it and they're less. still and and some some of them are preparing notes on their favorite food and you know, favorite fast food in Geneva it's one of the more difficult questions yeah it's it's impressive when you see that people have people have thought about, thought it. about it people <laughs> have thought about it. they're like "I trying remember what kebab I ate." Yeah you know, it's just like good good they're focusing on <laughs> good because this is a rigorous podcast as it's long a broadcast as, as long as it's alamir <laughs> editor please cut so no I'm I'm really Really happy that you came up with this, as we said, bad idea. Yeah. I'm glad we stick with it. And now, we, you know, the podcast, of course, is evolving. And we've had our first in-person interview. We had two. We had two, yeah. And so what could be the next innovation? We don't know yet. We'll do a live stream where we will ask you definitely for money. Yes, listeners, exactly.
0: You being the listeners. I w- we'll start a Twitch or a Threads account to badger you some more and give Michelle some Sorry, extra Sorry, yeah, Elon
1: is calling. He didn't didn't like the reference to threads. Sorry about that. Something something woke. I don't it's, know. Yeah. Your blue check has been revoked. That's a lethal weapon 2 reference. It's right? been revoked. <laughs> Diplomatic community. It's just been revoked. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: now that we've gotten that out of the way, I think now is probably a good time to mention for new and old listeners, if they're not just tuning in, that after 50 episodes and two and a half years, you can subscribe to this podcast. And better yet, you can also share with a friend or a stranger. And you can find this on anywhere you get your podcast, I should mention, literally anywhere, Spotify, Google, Apple, the, the whole lot of them. So do subscribe to all of them and leave us a review as always. Or just download them. Speaking of reviews, we had a slightly longer break than we had planned between episodes, which means we got a little bit more than usual amount of listener feedback. This time, it was mainly it was one email and a few WhatsApps telling me to. Uh, I'm putting this all into one Sanitize recommendation. This please, Sanitize yeah. this, yeah. Stop breathing. And also, what happens to the sound quality was the general gist of the feedback we got. And the answer was, this is what happens when I edit podcasts and Michelle and Valentina are not here to make us sound professional. So I apologize. It will not happen again, I don't think.
1: But if it does, I will apologize again. We also bought something that looks a little bit like an old-school satellite to put around the microphone to try to reduce echo.
0: I think this was the thing that Yuri
1: Gargarin was actually shot into space This is, the this is space exactly with. the thing he walked out of in 1961. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You I, have I flat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, did a, I did also need a listener in person. During the break from the banking industry of all places here in Geneva, he did think I was Rob. So he did address me as, as Rob at first, despite this slight on, on my individualness. Wow, Rob, you're not as good looking as I thought. <laughs> something like that? Was something like yeah. that. Where'd all your facial hair go? <laughs> I do have to mention, despite this, that he does listen to each new episode, predominantly during his morning bike rides to work from Gorsier. So he is the Lance Armstrong, non-steroid version, also a banker. So shout out to Stuart for listening Thanks, and Stuart. for passing this on to the rest of your clients. Yeah, I think this
1: should be part of the pitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, We'll uh, take open, care of your money and all that good stuff, but and, also this. And here's a podcast. Here's a podcast. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a lot of things did happen also while we were away apart from just the feedback. So have you heard about the Musk-Zuckerberg cage fight? Yeah, I did hear about that. I, recently, there was a photo of, of the Zuck without a shirt on. And he Bum, is, pretty, he's, a, he's, a real, he's a real human being, and he's pretty buff. So I don't know what's going to happen. Somebody's bone might get broken.
1: I think that also that Zuck will awkward him to death. I mean, I think you can do that. No, you just, you just make it so awkward that your opponent just collapses.
0: He's going to tell him he's really happy with the progress he's made so far. Yeah. And that he's continuing to work to do better and do more.
1: That's it. And we're sorry about the whole election thing.
0: And the teen depression. But uh, but moving on, I'm actually thinking if people will pay to watch this, what about seeing me and you in a cage
1: match? I think that wouldn't take long is all. I mean, we do, you know, if we're going to monetize it, it should take a little longer. Might have to choreograph that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll try to be sober for it. Obviously, that would make <laughs> a big difference. <laughs> That'll actually re- release your inhibitions. <laughs> yes. Well, that's just the right dosage. That's yeah, true. It's a good point. You'll just bull rush me. Yeah. Death. Exactly. For I'll go for f- the hair.
0: The right away for the hair. <laughs> no, no one touched the hair. <laughs> do you see. know how much product I'm going to put in this <laughs> That's thing? Exactly. It's going to be immovable. <laughs> There's also threads that came out. Have you heard about this? This Absolutely.
1: is like the thing. Absolutely. We told Michelle we need to be on this thing right away. Yeah. Right away. So we'll do that. We don't once. have our
0: Mastodon account yet. No. Or Signal. I think Mastodon went extinct or is going slowly. Is in the it? ice, I don't, believe. I don't know. That was a Mastodon joke, get it? Yeah, yeah hilarious. Yeah, thank hilarious. you. Hilarious. Climate change is not that hilarious. I, I, I saw one in the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York once, but I guess we'll we'll have a Threads account once the EU gets around to um, unblocking it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whenever that is, any <laughs> any decade now. Anyway, back to watches. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So jumping right into the important news stories, as always, this episode, the first one coming up, it's a bit like Ground Talk Day. We tend to talk about it a lot, but that is only because it's quite important. So China is in the news again. So Rob will be thrilled. So there seems to be a perfect storm of security interests. We've talked about them driving this inefficient trade policy. Rob is not a fan of. I'm also dealing with things like a subsidy race between allies like the EU and the US. We've talked about this again in on past episodes, but we need to stress again how Differently, things are being done these days. Even Janet Yellen is concerned, we'll talk about it a bit later. So, until now, we've seen the US has been mainly the one levying these export controls against China, be it targeting specific companies like Huawei a couple of years ago or entire industries like semiconductors more recently. Now it seems it's China's turn, and they've recently levied their own export controls on gallium and germanium. These are not the atomic numbers of this episode, but rather they're rare earth minerals that are vital to the semiconductor industry, which is good timing because we did have Chris Miller on last episode. And you'll be happy or not happy to know, depending on where you are, that China controls 90 and 60% of the world's supply of each of those respective minerals. Sadly, I don't know what Rob thinks, sadly, but for me, I don't think this will lead to a rethink from either China or the West thinking on how we move forward. Rather, I think it'll lead to more of resilience and nearshoring and a move towards those things in supply chains or subsidy races. If we're talking about the green transition, for example, and then generally, just a bigger fragmentation in geopolitical blocks. And I guess trade and all of this will be the collateral damage. I don't know what you think about that, Rob.
1: Yeah, I think one thing is we see a jump immediately in the commodity price of these two minerals, and there could be others that they could do the same with. But I think what we've seen over time is when this happens, new supply develops. So we've seen this with a couple of different minerals, even some of the minerals that have been in Congo, you know, they found alternate supply after there's been issues of sustainability, potential supply issues. So I think that would be my first point. And it's exactly the same as U.S. control. So in the beginning, there may be an issue with China accessing technology. Over time, it's not going to be an issue. But we just have to see what kinds of distortions it could bring. But there's a massive, massive incentive now to mine these minerals. You know, Norway announced incredible deposits of different kinds of things.
0: It does require big investment, but it will force these companies who rely on these minerals, again, to look for other ways. So maybe it'll lead to this sort of dislocation in the short term. You'll have this supply shock, but then eventually it'll smooth out in some way or fashion as the companies figure out how to get what they, what is essential to semiconductors,
1: for example. So that's what we've seen so far. Now, could there be a break? And could somebody actually put an export ban in or some sort? It could happen. So far, I really feel like both the U.S. and China are dancing around the issue of incredibly strong interdependence in most things. And what we've been saying over the last few broadcasts is that the trade in intermediate goods, the trade between U.S. and China is still incredibly healthy. So we're just nibbling around the edges. Now, if, for instance, suddenly there's a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, or there's something as cataclysmic as that, would this mean suddenly there's, boom, no trade? Or would we start seeing export bans with the U.S. try to enforce certain things that would be more sweeping? Would the U.S. try to delink entirely? We know they're not doing that right now bit of de-risking, d this d that But essentially, it's still doing something. It's still doing what you always did, but calling it something different, in my view. A better name. We're adding <laughs> 2.0 to it. So maybe I'm slightly exaggerating, but there's still a lot of trade there. So I don't know if I believe in this. So we've talked also about this Jake Sullivan speech. This is Biden's point, which is it's not unrestrained globalization. Sounds a little bit like the Trump administration. But in this case, it's less about we're going to punish wrongdoers for perceived issues or real issues. This is more like we're going to start doing things that are better for our security interest, and we're going to start doing things that are better for what we think are positive goals, like workers' rights or sustainability or environmental. So do I really believe that that's happening? I feel like it's still quite marginal, but let's see. But I guess the most important perhaps thing is U.S. and China are talking again.
0: The best quote I heard recently, or the best line of thinking, was that the U.S. is secretly happy about these export controls because it means that they'll just further solidify their position. As I sort of alluded to a little bit earlier, it's how I think it's going to play out. Countries, whether in the EU or the West, generally speaking, I'm putting that in quotes, is solidifying this fragmented, a whole host of things, I guess, trade, things things like that. Actually, one thing we also should mention is that just a further example of what we've been talking about is the fact that the U.S. and the U.K. recently signed the Atlantic Declaration, which I should mention is not a trade deal, but it does seem to bring the UK Thank you. into the Definitely oil. can't be
1: that because it's not approved by any
0: parliament or any congress. In
1: case you were wondering,
0: it does seem to bring the UK the orbit or Biden's orbit, the orbit of this sort of IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. So this move has been explicitly linked to what they're calling this new vision for economic security, which you talked about. Jake Sullivan outlined a bit earlier, a few months ago open,
1: free-flowing, unconstrained globalization, things like that. Yeah. I mean, I would say also to that, that this is the kind of trade policy we've said it before that the Biden administration is doing. It's not a treaty. It's not a treaty on the British side. It's not a treaty on our side. It's like the deal they did around allowing British companies to access the IRA. None of this is going through Congress. None of it has to do with market access in the traditional sense. And I'm starting to think maybe they're right. Is it really about reducing tariffs anymore? I mean, tariffs in the U.S. are very low, tariffs in Britain very low. Maybe they should be doing trade policy differently. I'm not sure I agree with the fact that trade policy is all about strategic competition and so on. But on the other hand, maybe they're focusing on the right things in a little bit in the wrong way.
0: I mean, I think it's hard to have anyone disagree when they say trade policy when you put it that way. It's more about getting into the details. But
1: you're you're about to say the word but.
0: However, it's more about getting when you look into the finer details when you raise a bit more questions. I wonder how much of it is symbolic though rather than significant. It does mark the shift away from, again, as I said, this unfettered free of, of trade in favor of protectionism. I think the difference here is that it's larger mutual protectionism. It's not just the US sort of putting up barriers against UK imports or European imports or individual countries. Rather, it's a block in this case, which seems to be converging on. Yeah. Is it better? I don't know. I don't think so because it's leading to higher costs. So it all sounds great until the price
1: of your tinned fish But I think, so we were asking, well, how does this actually change trade? So there's also some interesting early cases of how people are deciding, how are they going to manage this fragmentation? Companies that are making concrete decisions about how they trade differently because of potential supply chain disruptions, because of tension, not even because of sanctions. So an example, your favorite company, Salesforce, where the word Mahona means you're fired. It's it's Ohana, but also, yes, they both mean (laughs) the same thing. (laughs) So they're shifting to a model in which they rely on a local partner to operate some of the products and services that they have in China, effectively trying to isolate, put a bubbler around the China business. So companies are finding a way to live with this Volkswagen. They want to keep the technology they develop in China so that it won't be affected if there comes a time. So it's not even sanctions now. It's planning for future sanctions. There's a Japanese uh, bathroom product maker.
0: I love Japanese toilets.
1: They're the best, really. I
0: mean, People <laughs> may think this is a joke. I'm the proud owner of two. Japanese toils. Do you
1: get a little air up there?
0: I can neither confirm nor deny it because this is going out to a whole bunch of people. But I will just say I love
1: Japanese toes. So this it's a company called Lixil. And anyway, that's what it looks like when I read in English. <laughs> so, so their brands include American Standard, what? And Grohe. I didn't realize they were owned by a Japanese company. Doesn't matter. They're reorganizing their supply chain to make products for China in China and products for the U.S., Largely in North America. So they're dividing their production operations. So a toilet maybe is not gonna require a very advanced chips. Well, some Japanese toilets. You haven't seen my toilet. <laughs> Do you require you some of the it? most advanced technology. I'm recording this podcast from a <laughs> toilet, actually, because there's a Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> so maybe they don't require the most advanced chips, but it's just a matter of a chance to kind of separate your supply chain. So I think it's really interesting and also. You see now investors, venture capitalists and so on are actually forcing or providing a lot of pressure on companies to make this separation. So I don't know what you think, Artie, is this kind of a marginal issue or is this going to be a significant issue?
0: I think it's good that you're putting it into concrete terms for listeners. We talk about these things in sort of 30,000 foot view, but I think it shows you exactly how policy changes have effects in the private sector domain. It really highlights the fact that these things do have consequences.
1: And the most extreme case, of course, for us has been companies who are sheltering their operations in Russia. So they find a way whether it means giving ownership to the partners in a consulting firm or rebranding, but somehow behind the curtain, they're still having an economic relationship, which can be activated or deactivated based on whether it's sanction time. Yeah, somewhere Jeff Goldblum is smiling. Life uh, finds a way. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Anyway, okay, so blame the worker is That's a new economic technical term that we've been hearing. It's not, I'm making a joke. It's not a technical term they're using, but the, rather as greedflation starts to fade, weightflation is growing, especially as companies in Europe Their margins are starting to get lower and lower post-COVID. So we're seeing that sugar high that most companies had during COVID because of supply chain and just higher demand of people stuck at home buying bikes. That is subsiding a bit. And now companies who raise their prices just because they could seem to have kind of stopped doing that. Not in the watch industry, by the way, but that's neither here nor there, at least in the U.S., And now, however, there's a search on for the source of this continued inflation. And now people seem to be blaming workers for asking for pay increases to keep up with this great inflation.
1: So cat wagging the dog. It's one (laughs) of those cat wagging (laughs) the dog situations. And so you start to see absurd things like the head of the Bank of England telling wage workers, please don't ask for more money. So you mentioned margins. So I've seen an analysis from the Wall Street Journal that says gross margins of companies have come back to 2019 level so that the greedflation, i.e. companies using their market power to price higher than they should, is over in the U.S. But it does not seem to be over in Europe. We still see in Europe very high margins that are coming in. And then you see political movements in kind of in two categories. One is to try to get these big companies to bring their margins down. And on the other side, they are actually asking, and they're actually thinking about how to get workers to stop asking for additional wages. And we've been talking about the fact that labor markets remain tight. So the economics are there. And we've seen cost of living rising and people's purchasing power going down. It's incredible to think that politicians are saying, dear citizen that I represent, please don't ask. Please don't ask for more money, even though you're struggling, even though you don't have enough gas for the car, even though you've got a clapped out Renault Clio that's with one wheel that's wobbling. This was actually a real story in front of me when I was on the French motorway today. (laughs) You know, please don't do that because, geez, it's causing inflation. Who
0: would do that? I mean, two things. To play devil's advocate on the governor of the the Bank of England, it was a bit clickbaity, that article, because he did actually say the full quote is that to do that, we cannot continue to have the current level on wage increases, and we can't have companies continuing to seek to rebuild profit margins, which means that prices continue to go up at current rates. So what he's saying is we can't have greedflation, but workers also definitely stop asking for more money. On the second thing for me on that, so putting that in context, what came first for me? Now this is more of a political question rather than a trade or economics issue, but we're very quick to say workers, they're asking for too much money, unions have too much power, etc., strikes are annoying, there's too much garbage in Paris. All those things happen. But what we don't tend to talk about as quickly is this greedflation, which is a term that seems to have caught on the last year or so. When companies raise their prices, we simply say, well, that's the market meeting demand, right? So they're doing what any company would do in a capitalist society. So therefore it's okay, but rather it seems when the workers are doing it on the other end, we seem to sort of get up in arms about it. And that, I don't have an answer. I don't know why, I'm not sure.
1: No, I think this is a kind of classic economics situation where it becomes an inflationary spiral because citizens are facing higher prices, they ask for more wages and so on. So it's kind of a built-in thing for economists and so on. And it goes back to the thing we've been talking about, which is inflationary pressure based on expectations, because people have the expectation that prices are going to continue to go up. And it built in is a wage demand. But actually, we've got a fundamental behind it, which is tight labor markets. So sorry, Howard Schultz, but your folks should unionize and they should ask for more money as Starbucks employees. We want a more robust <laughs> wage increase. <laughs>
0: Rancha Gonzalez is the third dean of the Paris School of International Affairs at Sciences Po and also the first woman to lead the world's third school for politics and international studies. Prior to joining PSIA, Ms. Gonzalez served as Spain's Minister of Foreign Affairs, European Union and Cooperation between 2020 and 2021. My old job. She was also previously the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations and the Executive Director of the International Trade Center.
1: And our boss's 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 boss. She was our boss. Between 2005 and 2013, she served as Chief of Staff for the Director General of the World Trade Organization, Pascal Lamy. Before that, she held senior positions at the European Commission in the areas of international trade and development. Ms. Gonzalez started her career as a lawyer in the private sector, and that's fine. Folks can do that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. A Spanish national, Ms. Gonzalez holds a degree in law from the University of Navarra and a postgraduate degree in European law from the University of Carlos III of Madrid.
0: So, Arancha, thanks for joining us.
2: A real pleasure.
0: Why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up in trade and the international scene in particular?
2: Well, I ended up in trade by pure coincidence. I wanted to do European affairs, so I landed in Brussels. And then I started working as a lawyer in a law firm, and this law firm was very involved in the implementation of the Uruguay Round results, basically in the legal act that had created the World Trade Organization. And so I got infected by the trade virus, and then I went on. I then moved to the European Commission, from there to the World Trade Organization, then to the UN World, International Trade Center, and so on and so forth. It's pure coincidence, but the good thing is that trade, once it gets you, it's in your blood.
0: Whether you like it or not. And can be fun. That's optional.
1: I haven't heard that one yet. Now that you've been at all these places, you're gonna help us with some recommendations on how to fix it. Let's try. So a lot has happened over the past five years, if we can just put it that way.
0: We've had one event after another. Trade has sort of been a boogeyman. But one thing we'd like to know is, have any of these events changed your perceptions on the international trading system, the multilateral system in general? We talked to people who, if you read their work five, ten years ago, it was all about how multilateralism is great and countries are committed, etc. Their thinking has kind of changed now because of events and the way countries have reacted. Has that altered your perceptions at all? Or, and if so, how?
2: Let's say that I always thought that trade was an incredible tool uh, to foster growth, to foster employment, productivity, competitiveness, and this remained. Now, I've always also been of the view that trade on its own is not enough, that you need a bigger toolbox, that you also need sound domestic policies that will help translate trade into benefits for all or that you will have the necessary instruments to cushion those that will be impacted by international trade. And that you also need internationally, disciplines and multilateralism in places other than trade. You need this also in taxation. You need this today in the area of technology for trade to be this engine it helps lift all boats. Now, it's true that trade has suffered, partly because it was seen as the one and only tool instead of one in a toolbox, and more recently because there's been a weaponization of interdependence because trade has been used as a weapon. And despite all of this, I think we have to obviously modulate trade in this way, in making it possible, making it happen, in making it work for all. I don't think we should throw away this huge engine of progress that is international trade.
0: How do you see this sort of ending? Because it doesn't look great now. It seems that everybody is talking not necessarily how do we calm things down, but let's do more of it.
2: So I think we've got to probably have to have a bit of a reset. We have to rethink. I think we are coming from a place where openness was the default option, and we should not move to a place where closeness is the default option, but there are spaces where we're going to need to define what degree of opening we want. For example, in the space of technology linked to security. We were coming from a place where markets were above states. And we are now moving into a place where states are having the upper hands over markets. But we have to be careful in doing that. Countries that have a lot of money, European countries, the US, China, may be good at this race, but what about those that don't even have money today because they are so indebted that they cannot even pay for their public services? We are coming from a place where we thought that all countries could fit under one roof, the World Trade Organization, and that the WTO was going to foster convergence. Now, probably, we have to move into a system where, instead of convergence, we are looking at managing coexistence. So, these are some of the shifts we've got to build. But having spent a bit of time in the last days here in Geneva, I know that it's better to do this in a collaborative spirit, in a cooperative manner, than just simply going into a world of decoupling and fragmentation. Not only because it's going to be bad for the big guys, but it's going to be terrible for the smaller guys. So we all have to be a bit responsible.
1: So we have mentioned multilateralism a few times, and you've been in several different types of multilateral institutions, WTO, but also you've seen the European Union from the inside, mm-hmm. the UN and so on. So we feel strongly that they're part of the solution, that the issues we're dealing with are supranational, so that we can't deal with them as countries. But we also hear a lot about these institutions not being fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. And we see actors within the institutions undermining them. And I would put the U.S. in that category many times. And some people said the U.S. wasn't about openness. It was about its own interest. Mm-hmm. And openness served that interest at the mm-hmm. beginning. I'd say you're doesn't.
0: a self-hating American, but that's... Well, you know, I've heard people say it. I mean, I, I
1: get a lot of currency out of that. So in a practical sense, how do we make these institutions work better. Well how do we make folks collaborate, as you say, and work together in a way that's constructive?
2: Well, first the institutions are not fit for purpose because the states that inhabit those institutions don't want them to be fit for purpose. These institutions don't have a life on their own. They have the life that their stakeholders that our nations today basically want these institutions to have. Now this is part of the problem. Part of the problem is ensuring those nations can have a bit of a better conversation among them. We saw this, by the way, in the World Trade Organization last July, when they reached an agreement on curbing fish subsidies. They did this. Every member of the organization agreed to this. So there is an example to show of states coming together and getting into a deal. Same recently with the Kunming-Montreal deal on biodiversity, or more recently with the UN treaty on the high seas. So when countries see that there is an interest to work for, they are doing this. Now, let's make sure that this becomes a bit more the norm rather than the exception.
1: So we spend a lot of time talking about China on the podcast and obviously China's relationship with the U.S., China's production capacity, China's regulatory decisions. A lot of these things are driving trade. And of course, there's a lot. There's a conflictual relationship now between the U.S. and China. Mm-hmm. And it's growing, it's getting ramped up with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and so on. So you've been writing about the EU relationship with China and asking for them to have a more realistic relationship. What would that look like? How would it contrast with what they have today?
2: Well, in the realm of trade, I think it would be something like, number one, the risk, not decouple. It would be better define the interplay between trade and security rather than assuming that security is what will trump over international trade. And number three, it would probably look like engage with China, dialogue with China. It's a systemic actor. Doesn't have to mean that you like what China thinks or what the Chinese leadership say. Is that you have to recognize that there are systemic issues from pandemics to climate change to debt relief that today require China being at the table. So I think we have to, we are in a world where fracture is the norm and maybe a tendency to think that by refusing to engage, you are making your point. I think there are issues that cannot afford simply not engaging.
1: Yeah, and I guess during the pandemic that we were talking about a U.S. decoupling from China, but it remained the U.S.'s by far largest trading partner apart from North American countries. Now there is an actual statistical reduction and a kind of spreading out of trade to places like Bangladesh, to Vietnam, Malaysia and others. So there is a kind of decoupling, isn't there? No, I think right uh,
2: there is a de-risking. So overall, if you look at the trade figures, I mean, first you should not look at trade figures in months. You have to look at series, right? Then you have to take a bit of a perspective and go over some of the anomalies that we have seen like covid But I would say that what's happening is de-risking. Now, the U.S. is de-risking. China is also de-risking. Because China has also understood that it may be hit if it does not transplant some of its operations to countries in the vicinity, Mm. to Thailand and to Indonesia, to Malaysia, to Vietnam, which is what's happening today. Same with the European Union. So one thing is de-risking, which is finding a better way to manage your risks. It's another thing to decouple, which is basically to cut your trade, investment, technological relations with another country. But now, it so happens that this country called China is basically, it's over 15% of international trade, close to 20% of GDP. It's systemic. Systemic. So, again, you don't have to give in making your points. Every country has to defend its own interest. I'm not naive to the point that we would have countries gladly relinquishing their national interest. They will not. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we best serve our national interests? Do we do that by decoupling or do we do that by de-risking and engaging?
0: But is that feasible? Can you have de-risking without some kind of decoupling? Because it seems like trade, you said it's being weaponized earlier, and I think that's obviously the case, but it seems like it's sort of like a passive-aggressive move between China and the West or the US, however you want to classify it, as an alternative to other means of aggression. We know that they're spying, et cetera, but in terms of avoiding a physical war, they're doing this by weaponizing trade. The next step would be something, a physical confrontation, which nobody wants, obviously. But th- how do you see it being that people are going to say, okay, well, let's de-risk and not decouple if de-risking doesn't get you what you're aiming for, right?
2: I mean, of course, at the end of the day, whether we use the de-risking or we use the decoupling is what do we mean by that? So what I mean by the de-risking is finding a better way to manage risks than simply cutting relations with another country. Of course, there's going to be in the de-risking, there'll be areas, technology very closely associated to security, where it is most likely going to be basically excluding certain trade with certain partners. So it's going to look a bit like decoupling, right? But the question is, how do we define that the space? And how do we define the guardrails to make sure that this is the exception and it does not become the norm, the big hole through which the entirety of an economic relationship between countries or blocks disappear. I can tell you that the world cannot afford this. The world we're moving into basically, the new phase of globalization we're moving into with greater spaces, with more closing, with more state intervention with difficulties in managing coexistence, with more pressures on the security side, is a highly inflationary world. Someone is going to have to pay the inflationary bill. So we might as well discuss this in that light and think that today we have about 50 countries in this world that are broke. So this also has to be factored in this conversation. Mm. Is this also in our national slash collective interest?
0: Yeah, it's a good point, it's often overlooked. So I think that leads us nicely to the next question. Now you are the dean of the PSIA at Sciences Po. The question obviously would be, how do you educate the next generation of leaders on the world stage in a world which is so tumultuous, so many events happening at the same time?
2: I mean, I think that the most important message that we try to instill in them is that they are in a school of international affairs because they want to be shaping the world They are not in a school of mercenaries. They are not in a school where you learn to earn a living. You are there with a purpose. And your purpose is that you are convinced that with your intervention, you can shape the future. Whether the future is in the international economy, international trade, whether it's in humanitarian affairs, whether it is on security and defense, or whether it is on the new Area we are going to be launching next year around technology, geopolitics, and governance. The main message we want our students to have is that they are not passive; they are not just standbyers, viewers. They are actors, and they have to learn how to shape this future that will be theirs.
1: You're telling us that there's only a quarter of your students who are French, so it's an amazingly diverse set of people, I guess.
2: And this is the beauty of a school like the Paris School of International Affairs. 25% is at the heart of Paris, brand new campus in the European Union, but proudly international because if you're sitting in France, if you're a European citizen, you cannot shape this world if you do not understand how the rest of the world thinks and does. So it's a great, the school, again, 130 nationalities, super bright kids, incredibly motivated, idealistic, as you should be at that age, but ready again to be shaping the future.
1: It does appear the European Union regulators do feel like they can shape the world without understanding the rest of it. Uh, Speaking of passive-aggressive.
0: No comment.
2: (laughs) No comment. If they are, then they better make sure that they understand the rest of the world.
1: So I think we're going to shift gears in terms of the interview. So we've asked most of our guests who have lived outside of their home country, what did you learn about your home country, Spain, when you lived outside? Good. Hearing. Can I call Is your home country, Spain? First of all, we need to <laughs> confirm this. Of course. What did you learn when you were looking at Spain from outside and through the eyes of the you know, people where you were living? What did you see?
2: So it was very interesting. After close to 14 years in Geneva, I went back to Madrid. And the thing that shocked me most was at the time at which we would have lunch. Having have been, been in Geneva where the kitchen closes at one uh, o'clock. If you're lucky, one thirty. Sometimes I would start my lunch at four o'clock. So eating habits <laughs> change and eating habits do matter when you're working. And it was interesting. I had gotten into the Swiss way of life and I had to readjust to the Spanish way of life.
1: And that means also eating dinner at midnight?
2: Well, yeah, sometimes.
0: So there's a rumor in international circles that arancha is a Basque for orange.
2: Did no, wrong, wrong, wrong. Basque for orange is "aranja." Sounds like Arancha.
3: No, Arancha
2: is Italian for orange. This is why I always loved going to Italy. (laughs) There would be this big smile (laughs) when I would say my name. There was this big smile, almost giggle like, oh, my God, she's called orange.
0: If you had to pick one graduate school to go to in the whole world, in the whole world, now you have your literally your pick of the litter and it's a big litter. Where would it be?
2: Of course, Paris, School of International Affairs at Sciences Po. Where else?
0: Some would say you're biased, but not me. Exactly. <laughs> not why you're I here. I am
2: terribly biased, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> I'm only saying that because I didn't go there. It didn't exist.
1: In Since form. existed. But the Paris School for International Affairs, did it exist? Are you trying to make me feel better that
0: I didn't go there? <laughs>
2: okay, so let's fix, let's say it like this. 150 years ago, Sciences po was created. It's a unique place combining, you know, social science. It's a university for social sciences, human sciences, but combining academic with practitioner knowledge. Very on the ground. 12 years ago, the Paris School of International Affairs was set up. I'll say no more about your age, Artie. Yes, actually
0: exactly. when I graduated, so I just missed the cut. And 12 years ago, really, no, no, it wasn't 12 years ago, it was 10 years ago, excuse me.
1: Yes, and because there's a lot of confusion. It has nothing to do with the Teletubby named Pole. Who? No, no. there's a Teletubby called Pole. He's red, he's the red one. I don't know why you know that. I, uh, we'll go to that later.
0: No, Tinky Winky was a Teletubby, right? <laughs> he's, he's, I he's the yellow one. one.
1: That was important to clarify. So, as I said, we are also scientific here. And as an expat living in Geneva, you must have eaten the national food, which is kebab, when you were here. So, we'd like to know what your favorite kebab was. And I can give you a hint. Probably a, lemme. a fan de
0: mire. They're literally next to each other. It's like being an Espanol and Barcelona fan.
2: Can I disappoint you? Can I? Yes. yes. Yeah. All right. It is our it. podcast, so, but just do it. Okay. Yeah. No kebab. Sorry. Rip, rip the bandit. Not kebab. I can recommend my favorite restaurant in Geneva. was a Spanish restaurant. Mm -hmm. Café Neve, Chambesi, a few others. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of good moments there. Great cook, great service, great food.
1: No no kebab. I'm going
2: to make a suggestion.
0: (laughs) Just throw it out there. Fusion is all the rage these last, I'm just going to say, 10 years. Why not have a paella kebab?
2: To think about. Physics. Yes. Is,
0: physics is the main problem. So, how do you put the rice and the food in there and wrap it up? It doesn't work.
2: To think about.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. 2BD. It, it sounds so like, if any of the listeners have an idea. Please email us. Yeah. If you could see Arancha's expression, it's you a get no get a sense for <laughs> this, this. is probably a no.
0: You can see how she was a diplomat.
1: <laughs> she very
0: nicely told <laughs> us no by clearing her throat. Um, on that happy note, I think we're going to have to end the podcast before Arancha beats me up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's happened before. There's video evidence. Never. Thank you for for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure.
2: Keep at the podcast. It's important to educate all of us about trade issues. Thank you for what you do.
1: And if people want to see your current research interests or the stuff that you're doing, where would they go to, to find it?
2: On my Twitter account or the LinkedIn, or I normally post what I do broadly on my social media.
1: So that brings us to our next segment already. This is where we ask our correspondent Michelle about the vibe shift. So Michelle, is globalization dead?
3: <laughs> well, I don't know if globalization's dead, but I did sense a little bit of a vibe shift uh, recently. So let me explain. So we've all heard about this thing called quiet quitting, right?
1: Yes, we've heard about it. We've Mostly from you. We've reported on it.
3: Yeah, yeah, we've all heard about it, seen it, or maybe experimented with a little bit of it. So basically, that's the idea of doing the absolute bare minimum at your job, since you know it's all you're being paid for and acknowledged for, really. But companies have caught up to it, and now we have to get ready for quiet hiring. Okay. And quiet uh, I- hiring is really just a new name for something that's not really that new. So if quiet quitting was about employees letting go of tasks that weren't specifically mentioned in their contract, quiet hiring is the employer doing the opposite. And slowly putting more responsibility on an employee. Obviously, this is without paying them more or even giving them a nice little title upgrade that doesn't really mean anything, but it's nice to have. And another version of this is, of course, hiring freelancers and, of course, unpaid interns.
1: Sorry, I thought we this was up. called management. I thought this was called the United Nations.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much what they're doing. They're quite hiring people, um, without really hiring them. That's the problem. A great example of this, aside from the United Nations, actually comes from Childish Gambino or Donald Glover. Do you guys know him? Yeah, he
0: hasn't grown up yet. He's Glover guy, yes. He's still childish. Yes. Lando Calrissian.
3: Exactly. Well, actually, aside from being Lando Calrissian, he is also launching a creative studio thing. Uh, We're not really sure what it means. The ads have him picking apples in like an orchard and telling us to come work with him. But it's kind of not clear what we're supposed to be doing. And really the ad is giving big, we are a family vibes. For instance, what is conversational marketing as a position? Like what do you do as a conversational marketer? Is that just copywriting? We have digital plus hospitality, which is that just doing everything? I'm not quite sure. We also have strategy plus analysis, which seems pretty straightforward until you realize that the description says you have to do finances and also legal, which I think are separate departments. I don't know. Seems it sounds innovative. They like just it. want
0: well-rounded individuals. Yeah, exactly. Also, this is another example of doing what you were doing before, but calling, calling it, it
1: something different.
3: different. Exactly. And really, the problem is not with the new titles, because we could probably you know, relate them to old job titles that already exist and kind of know what we're supposed to be doing. Um, but the point of keeping these things uh, vague is that you never know what your job actually is. So if you're like in digital plus hospitality... And somebody comes up to you and says, Oh, yeah, I need to design an app for me. Are you allowed to say no? Because it's kind of digital. But also, isn't that kind of the job of the developer? Which, by the way, should be a front end, back end, and like complete all over developer in this uh, organization.
1: And also, if somebody comes to you and says, Could I get some more towels?
3: Exactly. Could that Your, also hospitality. Be part of it? Your hospitality. Your hospitality. Well? <laughs> I'll send those to you digitally. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I feel like this uh, is a succession
0: yeah. gag that you're just making up <laughs> hospitality plus We're breaking silos. It's exactly
3: that. But it's real. Exactly, it's breaking silos by using one person to be the entire company. All I'm saying is maybe we have to know what we're supposed to be doing. That's would just be really nice. But also like if there's a vibes forecaster position that opens up at this company, Donald, I think I have the perfect CV for that. Although you probably don't take CVs, you take more of like an interpretative dance video of two minutes or something, but I'm ready to do it. So call me up.
1: This brings us to our next segment, This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or trade lived anywhere else. So I want to start off with a really important development for all of our listeners, really. Taylor Swift tickets are going on sale.
0: Th- that sound you hear is Swifties rioting in the streets to, to buy a ticket. Virtually. Yeah. yeah. We were trying just when central banks just starting to get inflation under control. <laughs> In the U.S., it's down to three percent now. Europe's still quite pretty high. UK, better we, less we talk about the better. Regardless, they're trying to do their best, level-headed best these past couple of years. And along comes Taylor Swift. Now this, and now we've got a fight to get a twenty thousand dollar ticket, which you can buy on StubHub to see Taylor Swift complain about Jake Gyllenhaal. And you have a, <laughs> again,
1: <laughs> or not. but but also you have a situation where there's, you know, the economists have to decide whether Tay-Tay tickets are part of core inflation. Or are they part of the rest of them? so they go with like food, heating oil, you know, rent, and Tay-Tay tickets. <laughs> <That's laughs> and then you see a real spike in core inflation, and uh, this is the thing economists really have to worry about.
0: Or they'll do what economists usually do is in, and just remove it, whatever it doesn't fit the let's model. Control, let's control that out of here. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a variable. That's that's an assumption. Exogenous. Let's
1: assume that this doesn't exist. <laughs> So a little closer to home, we've, we've got a couple of wildlife things to report here in Switzerland. First, it was reported that a North American, an invasive, it's called invasive, which is slightly judgy. Mm. North American snapping turtle was captured in Switzerland. The thing that really struck me was it was captured by police officers who knew how to handle the animal with the necessary precautions and they also, this is also a quote by somebody who's president of the Turtle Center. Man. So he's, is he, you know. The Turtle Club. <laughs> the Turtle Club. <laughs> this guy's turtly enough to be president of the Turtle Center. He must be cool. So I love this guy. The other one that was just balancing this, and, and as we know, folks, if you do see one, call the police. They know how to handle an animal like this because otherwise it can take a finger off.
0: Funny story. North American snapping turtle was actually the my nickname in, uh, when I arrived <laughs> I in SoTso. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And still is <laughs> depending, depending on who, years who you later. are. Depending on who you are. <laughs> so then uh, we've got a really important trade news here. Number one, quite disturbing for those of you who are here in Switzerland. It's just on the cusp of getting to a point where they're importing, they're importing more cheese than they're exporting. This is uh, this is extremely disturbing. This is the end of times. The, for me, the most important, perhaps most disturbing aspect of it was Swiss. Residents eat as much cheese as they always did. Mm. It's just a lack of production. So they're really chomping down on cheese. There's no issue there. They're doing their part. Local production, however, is not keeping up.
0: This is just more bad news, which comes on the top of a couple of months ago, where there was a court in the U.S. which ruled that American producers are allowed to call gruyere, gruyere, even if it's not produced.
1: American gruyere.
0: Yeah, in yeah, gruyere, true. Switzerland, which I think is just another body blow.
1: There's also a French gruyere, which is terrible. Well, since
0: many of our listeners are from France, according to the statistics, I'm going to refrain from making a joke
1: about French cheese. It stinks. <laughs> Thank you, folks. <laughs> that is that is the first time anybody ever thought of that joke. <laughs> uh, however, part of the production issue is who wants to drag cows up and down and up and down a mountain. It never made any sense anyway. I mean, it goes clang clang clang. You put a pew you know you put a flower in the in the in the cow's ear. It's beautiful. It, it makes posters. no sense if you want to produce cheese. Why? I think it's it's artisanal. And, it's artisanal, and meaning it's expensive and inefficient.
0: Yeah, and people with disposable income
1: love anything that says artisanal. <laughs> anything inefficient okay. and artisanal. Okay. But in the, in the interim, do look out for that so the beavers, growing wave of the the snapping turtles. The Snapping and the, turtles. If and you see one, call the specialized turtle police. And the wasps. And get on that. Get and get. In, start smashing that button for it Switzerland's Tay turning into like Jumanji. <laughs> Well, folks, that wraps up episode 50. It's a big number for us. And for you. And for you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by increasingly fragmented trade, inflation, and, of course, the North American snapping turtle. Also, we want to thank our guest and former boss, Rancho Gonzalez, who helped us understand how Geneva can be great again and gave us tips on Spanish restaurants. Unprompted. Of Unprompted.
0: We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Lovine and Valentina Saponara for highlighting the Vibe Ship, as well as in helping produce this and every TS episode. So please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Smash that subscribe button. Keep saying that. I don't think anybody's punch, smashing it. Punch it. Make sure whatever... Abuse ro- the r- Abuse the subscribe button. Do I do I butt in on your violently? Do I butt in on you when you're talking? I, I, I snap my my <laughs> trap shut like the snapping okay, turtle. Okay, all right, okay. So, you can get your next episode coming up very soon. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcast. Really anywhere you get your podcast? Yeah. Thank you once again, listeners, for tuning in. This marks again 50th episode. We are really excited to bring you another 50 more, maybe. Yeah. So don't forget to leave us a review, I should mention, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Rob does read all of them, like he butts in on my... Five stars. Thank you. I was waiting for that. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining, maybe later on Threads also. Where do you you follow us on Threads, Artie? Or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Or email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com.
1: And remember, folks, listen responsibly.
0: responsibly.